Hello, my name is Scott Findlay, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Biology at the University of Ottawa in Ottawa, Canada. And I'd like to welcome listeners to the Recovery Project. This is an initiative launched by Canada 2020, the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa, and Global Progress. And the Recovery Project focuses on the challenges of and the opportunities for economic and social recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. Here with me today to help understand both the promise and the practicalities of vaccines is Dr. Oren Levin of the Gates Foundation. Dr. Levin oversees four teams at the Gates Foundation that focus on delivery of interventions that reduce under five in maternal mortality, limit the spread of vaccine-preventable diseases, and promote more equitable health outcomes within countries and indeed globally. Particularly relevant to today's conversation, he also represents the Gates Foundation on the governing board of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, whose mission is to save children's lives by increasing access to immunization in low-level countries. By training, Dr. Levine is an epidemiologist. This is the branch of science that seeks to understand how and why diseases spread, and perhaps most importantly, how we can use this knowledge to hopefully prevent or at least control disease epidemics. Thank you, Dr. Levine, for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Scott. Thanks so much for the opportunity to talk with you today and, and to uh, uh, share the, the direction of the foundation and, and so many of the global partners, including uh, Canadian partners, are taking to try and curb the pandemic. I'd like to jump right in, if I may. Um, the Gates Foundation is, a, is actively involved in health prevention generally, and more particularly in, in the vaccine programs. And I wonder if you could tell us the different approaches that the Gates Foundation are taking to the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, thanks so much for that, Scott. Um, you, you've already highlighted one of the really important approaches that we're taking, which is uh, to help uh, the uh, process of, of uh, discovering, researching, developing, manufacturing, and ultimately uh, delivering a safe and efficacious vaccine. Because if we can vaccinate people, if we can give them the immunity uh, that they need to protect themselves if they encounter the virus, that is a really uh, legitimate magic bullet for for um, for combating the pandemic. But we're also um, cognizant that the vaccine uh, approach, as much as we want it to be the solution, uh, either may not work or may not work as well as as we'd like or as quickly as we like. And so there, there have to be, as in addition, other approaches that we follow. And so in addition to the work we're doing on vaccines, we are um, also investing in improving uh, diagnostics, uh, therapies, and strengthening the systems that are needed to deliver um, each one of those uh, interventions and get the most out of them. Uh, and, and that's a, a particular focus on um, helping countries with, with typically weaker health systems to, to reinforce and strengthen their systems to be able to deliver those different uh, approaches to, um, to combating COVID. So the Gates Foundation is, is taking what I think most people would consider a pretty prudent and cautious approach. Uh, in other words, there are many irons in the fire with respect to trying to control the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, 
But I guess I just like to focus uh, for a little while, at least, on the particular approach uh, associated with the developments of vaccines. This is something that lots of people and lots of governments, of course, as you well know, have an interest in. And I guess maybe I'd like to start off with a pretty basic question. And that would be, first of all, what is a vaccine and what does it do, at least in principle? In its most basic, it does what you outlined at the beginning. It, 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 um, it stimulates somebody's immune system to recognize a part of, in this case, the coronavirus, um, that the immune system can then uh, latch onto and help the body clear before the virus ever has a chance to make you sick. In other words, it means that you can, uh, in a, in, you know, in the best case with a safe and eff effective vaccine in your system, you can, uh, at least in my case, you could see your mom for the first time in many months and give her a hug uh, with the confidence that um, you, you're in a position to have warded off the virus before you saw it. So um, it's a way to give me the immunity that I might get from getting ill without getting ill in the first place. So just to be clear, the idea is that if you have a safe and effective, let's let's focus on the effectiveness of the vaccine and you've been vaccinated, then that means if you're exposed to the virus, you're unlikely to become sick from that exposure. Yeah, listen, um, not every vaccine is going to uh, work perfectly in every person all the time. Uh, most of our very best vaccines are um, effective, say, 90% of the time. And many of our very important vaccines are effective less than 90% of the time, but still uh, the majority of the time. But what it does mean is that as a population, there are more and more people who are immune. So as the virus goes looking around for somebody to try to infect and, and then pass the virus on to somebody else, it's finding it harder and harder to do that. And as that happens over time, that is going to diminish transmission and help all of us uh, be protected uh, by protecting ourselves and protecting the community that we live in. So with respect to this issue of protection of the community, one of the things that people have noticed is um, that for many, for many vaccines, their effectiveness can diminish over time. So, in, for example, initially you might have a, a vaccine that is 90% effective, but at least for some vaccines, they, their effectiveness diminishes over time. In other words, they're not as durable. Now, my limited understanding is that there are some vaccines which, are, which have high durability. They that, that immunity persists for years, even decades, and others that immunity is conferred only for comparatively brief periods of time, i.e. months or maybe a couple of years. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about um, what scientists uh, think about how this happens. Why is it that, first of all, some vaccines lose their effectiveness over time. And do we know anything about what distinguishes the viruses that lose their, seem to lose their, their effectiveness over time compared to those that seem to persist 
for for decades. So great question, uh, Scott. Um, maybe a, a couple of uh, really important points. So um, there are some uh, infections for which the immunity conferred by a vaccine is time limited by virtue of the organism, the, the virus, the germ, and the changes that it makes. So if you take flu uh, vaccine for, for uh, an example, um, we typically only get protection from flu vaccine for one season or uh, at the most a couple, um, in part because the virus is shifting and changing. And so the immunity that we trained our body to have is less uh, um, well-matched to the changing virus. There are other instances where the virus isn't changing, but the, the vaccine's durability uh, of protection um, can wane um, or, or the germ. Um, you know, measles is a great example of a, of a vaccine where we think that that vaccine gives, if not lifelong immunity, really, really long and durable immunity. And um, that's in part because the way that we make the vaccine is by um, tweaking the original virus to make it incapable of uh, causing illness, but capable of stimulating your, your, your immune system uh, to recognize the virus and, and, um, uh, and attack it when, when it actually uh, shows up. Um, that's an example of a really long-lasting uh, vaccine. Some of the other vaccines, um, oftentimes vaccines that are made out of just a fragment of a germ, uh, give us uh, immunity that lasts for a long time, but not forever. I think the one that most people will probably recognize uh, most uh, most readily in this is, is tetanus. Um, uh, uh, probably uh, many listeners had a tetanus shot as a child and then got a booster dose when they were older. Um, that's got to do with um, the way that the tetanus vaccine stimulates a whole bunch of immunity that sort of gradually wanes over time. And we want to keep that immunity just high enough that if you ever uh, were exposed to the rusty nail or whatever it is that um, might have given you tetanus, that there's enough of the uh, immune system producing uh, a response that um, that it clears that infection really quickly, and so we we administer booster doses every uh, you know ten years or so uh, for something like tetanus. So we have examples of both vaccines that work through their actions in different ways and require sometimes a booster dose or sometimes confer a longer lasting immunity, and we have examples where sometimes we're making vaccines to try and keep up with a rapidly evolving or mutating virus. I, I'd actually like to return to this issue of the durability of immunity. And, and thank you for pointing out the, the kind of the two differences, one having to do with the nature of the virus itself and it changing over time, and the other having to do with the, the vaccine. Um, but before I get to that, what your your response um, reminded me that we, it's probably useful for listeners to understand a little bit about 
the different types of vaccines that can be developed. And thus far, we haven't talked about that. So my limited understanding, again, is that we have what amount to four different major classes of vaccine platforms that are being developed. And I'm wondering if you could just give our listeners a little bit of insight into what those are and what the differences among them are. Yeah, happy to do so, Scott. And and actually, um, you're right. One of the things about the COVID vaccine development uh, process that's really incredible is here's a brand new virus that we've never experienced before and, uh, and we don't know that much about. We can't just pursue one approach and, and count on that to work. So one of the things that we're doing is trying um, several different uh, ways of making vaccines to find at least one that will be um, successful. It's a, a, a strategy of, if you will, multiple shots on goal. Um, I'll start with some of the, the most uh, basic ones because they're, they're really very similar to vaccines that many listeners will have had experience with. Uh, first approach is, is to um, uh, inject a, uh, a dead version of the virus, right? Um, the, probably the, the most recognizable example of this is either um, the inactivated polio vaccine that many of us got um, that was developed by Jonas Salk in his famous uh, uh, field trials back in the 50s. Um, and that same approach has been used for um, other vaccines as well. Uh, influenza vaccines are sometimes made this way. Um, you basically take the virus, you grow it, and then you kill it. So it can't go on being a replicating virus. But the um, uh, the features of the virus that the immune system needs to be trained to see are available. And the uh, and then the immune system sees those, remembers those, and the next time it sees the virus, it clears it. Uh, another way of doing it that's also being pursued is to... Um, to basically take one uh, one little part, one protein that is manufactured by the virus and is important for the virus in how it gets into and makes us sick. Uh, in this case, it's called the spike protein. Um, so um, one approach is make a bunch of copies of that spike protein, put that in a vaccine, your immune system sees the pieces of the spike protein, but the spike protein being unattached to the virus can't make you sick, but it can make your immune system recognize it. And then the next time you see uh, the spike protein attached to the virus, your immune system grabs the spike protein, clears the virus out. The third way, um, and this is one that's um, a little bit uh, closer to some of of the other um, viral vaccines that we've used is to to use a um a live virus um and uh a live virus that will um go into the human body and um show the human body that spike protein but the virus is incapable of making you sick um so it's it's almost like a uh, Trojan horse for for showing the immune system. Hey, here's the spike protein from this coronavirus. I want you to recognize it next time you see it, and then it's gone. Um, uh, that's um, 
that's similar to uh, one of the ways that we make a, uh, a vaccine against uh, the most important cause of diarrhea deaths worldwide, uh, a virus called rotavirus. We take a similar kind of approach to that. Um, and um, some of the examples of that are the um, uh, the vaccine candidates being pursued, say, um, out of the Oxford University in the UK uh, that some listeners may have heard about. And then um, the last class or, or platform for trying to make a vaccine this time around is really brand new. And that is um, using uh, something with the acronym mRNA, messenger RNA. It's basically a way of using a piece of the, the nucleic acids, the, you know, the combinations of A, C, Ts, and Gs that make up nucleic acids, or in this case, ACUs and Gs, um, that um, uh, that we, we would deliver this mRNA uh, and the human body would then create the, uh, the expression of the protein and the immune response would recognize that um, and, and be trained to, to be able to um, uh, eliminate the virus the next time it sees it. And that's a, that's a new uh, methodology uh, for making vaccines. It's, it's very exciting that's being uh, pursued at this time. So, so really four um, basic ways, um, it, it kill or inactivate the virus, um, a subunit approach where we shave off a little piece of, of, of the virus, uh, harmless piece on its own, but uh, gets an immune response. Uh, three, uh, a live attenuated virus uh, vaccine that is a, a, a weakened vaccine that um, is used to kind of uh, show the, 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 the little uh, subunit or protein to the, to the immune response and, and elicit it. And then this new um, mRNA approach. So essentially what we have here is we're, we're developing a whole range of potential platforms here because... We, it's, a, it's a novel virus, and we actually don't know which one of these will prove most effective. So we don't Absolutely. want to put, in a sense, all our vaccine eggs in one basket, one That's platform. Right. Yeah. Whether, whether you like to think about eggs in baskets or shots on goal, uh, what we want is a bunch of them so that we can have a, 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 a high probability of hitting at least one. Um, in this case, and I think this is really just a heroic and unprecedented uh, accomplishment, there's more than 160 vaccine candidates in development right now against this virus. And that's mind-blowing when you realize that uh, eight months ago, we didn't even know about this vaccine, this virus. Um, and it's only about seven months since we got the sequence of the virus in the first place. Um, it's really an incredible uh, global effort that's underway right now to to uh, to put eggs in many baskets, try a whole bunch of uh, different approaches, all at risk, um, and all with the common goal of trying to kind of uh, develop a safe, effective vaccine that um, can can put a hopefully a a, a swift uh, or swifter end to this pandemic. So I'd like to return um, at, eventually to the to the issue of the, the you know the global mobilization of scientific resources, but when we were chatting before about the issue of vaccine durability and immunity waning, you talked about 
one of the issues being the virus changing over time. And one of the ways that viruses, like all organisms, can change or virus populations can change over time is through mutation. And the faster the mutation, the more, the more changes that a, a particular population, in this case a viral population, accumulates over time. So do we know anything about how fast or the, the mutation rate in SARS-CoV-2 compared to, say, other coronaviruses or other viruses? There are really, really good, really uh, smart people working on this. I'm going to confess, Scott. I'm an epidemiologist in part because I was a failure in the lab. So I am not the best source on the, on the, on the viral mutation. Fair, uh, fair enough. <laughs> but, but there are people who have been uh, tracking it. And I haven't gone to their website recently to look at the dendrograms. But, um, uh, but my, my recollection from a few months ago is that the rate of genetic variability, particularly in the parts of the virus that we think would um, lead it to evade an immune response, um, appeared to be low. Um, now, it's a couple months since I looked at that last data, and I'd really encourage listeners to, to investigate further. But at this point in time, I don't think that we are anticipating the kind of um, mutation rate that um, has characterized some of the other viruses, like a common cold or, or even influenza, um, that have made those uh, so challenging. Yeah, I think my limited understanding is that that's the case. And that's that's important because um, if mutation rates are comparatively small, then all else being equal, that would tend to suggest that vaccines will be durable for greater periods of time. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Right. Okay, so um, you pointed out this, this massive mobilization of scientific effort around the world and we now have upwards of 160 vaccine candidates in various stages of development. Um, and I'm putting myself in the position of a decision maker, say a year from now, where we have hopefully a set of uh, candidates that seem to be effective at least to some degree. And are different platforms. And so now somebody has to decide, okay, which one of these are we going to choose to deploy and deliver? And I guess my question would be from your perspective, what, what do you think are the most important, let's assume that we have a, a menu, if you will, a la carte of different vaccine candidates. How do we choose among them? Well, first of all, let me just say uh, the scenario that you're describing, Scott, is my dream. <laughs> um, <laughs> if we um, if we have a problem, which is how do I select from multiple safe, effective vaccines, that is going to be the right kind of problem to have. And um, there's a lot of experience with um recommending amongst diverse vaccines that have um, the same illness that they're targeting, right? There's, there's people who pick one flu vaccine over another all the time. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the, the thing that's keeping me up at night right now is more, how do we get a breakthrough on those first few? And how do we 
allocate the vaccines and make sure that we are um, getting fair and equitable uh, distribution of the vaccines. That to me is is the is the thing that's really really uh, on my mind. And in order to do that, we're going to have to have a continued concerted global uh, approach. Um, we're going to need um, quite a lot of um, global collaboration and contribution. There's just no um, there's no precedent for what we're trying to do right now. We're trying to develop safe efficacious vaccines in a year. Uh, where um, typically it would be seven to 10 years. We're going to try to um, vaccinate the world in one to two years. Um, we have no, there's no uh, immunization campaign history uh, of that scale. And we're going to do it on a few months notice. Whereas even for um, really ambitious uh campaigns of vaccines like um, polio or measles or yellow fever, or these things that we do um, successfully vaccinate hundreds of millions of people in campaign style approaches every year. Um, those typically are planned for a year before they occur. In this case, we're doing uh, billions of people, not hundreds of millions. And we're doing it in, you know, uh, three to four months of planning instead of a year's worth of planning. Um, it, it, it I would, I would love to have that problem because when we get to that problem of choosing between multiple vaccines, that's a, that's a great dialogue to have driven by science and data. Um, and there's a lot of experience um, with um, recommendations for vaccines that are entirely driven by science and data. Okay, so I, I understand that this would be um, a problem that we would like to have and we may not actually have it. So if we wind the tape forward, we may find in a year that we have one uh, or maybe only two vaccines that people are reasonably convinced are safe and effective. And I'd like to go back to the safety issue in a second, but I don't want to lose my train of thought here. <clears throat> the, the question that I would have is, given that this is a global pandemic, and you have 210 plus countries around the world that once we have a vaccine, we'll need to be deploying it. There seems to be all sorts of scope for differences among countries in the way the vaccine is deployed and delivered, who gets prioritization, those, the issues that you referred to about equitability, and fairness in the distribution and delivery of vaccines. So how do we ensure what rather, what needs to be done to, to maximize the chances that we have once we have a vaccine developed, that it's deployed and delivered at a global scale in a coherent fashion? One of the things that um, gives me hope in all of this is the way that the world is coming together to help address some of these. Um, to your, to answer your question directly, um, we need to continue the global coordination around the um, research and development. Um, the Coalition for Epidemic uh, Preparedness and Innovation, CEPI, uh, is its acronym, is a global organization helping to, to bring people together around that and to support a, 
a portfolio of uh, vaccine candidates that that multiple different shots on goal um, in order to to um, to help make sure that we have um, at least one, <laughs> and hopefully the the problem you're describing of, of more than one vaccine known to be um, safe and efficacious. The the next thing we need to do is we need to manufacture enough of it that we've got um, the billions of doses that people in need um, uh, can 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 benefit from. And to do that and move fast, we've got to make several investments at risk. In other words, we need to start stockpiling vaccines while we're testing them so that if they turn out to be safe and efficacious, we have a whole bunch of it. And recognize that if that vaccine fails in the clinical trial, then we've overpaid for some uh, volumes that we're not going to use. Um, that's the only way that we're really going to go fast and go at scale. Um, in order to do that, we need in the next uh, two years on the order of about $20 billion. That $20 billion helps us to do the that late stage development work and the manufacturing and, and purchasing of, of the vaccines for, um, for low and middle income countries. And I'm really grateful to the government of Canada who as a participant in the Gavi board um, has stepped up to really help uh, this global process through both um, the generosity of their um, donation to Gavi and also their um, leadership in bringing uh, like-minded countries together to solve this as a, as a global problem rather than as a uh, individual uh, country by country problem. Um, once we get those vaccines uh, developed, uh, manufactured at an unprecedented scale and, uh, and have the financing to be able to procure that on behalf of, uh, um, in this case, the, the least developed countries of the world where um, we're really worried about the, the, the inequitable use. Um, then we've got to get the vaccine out and distributed and, and, and help um, generate um, people's understanding of the safety and efficacy of the vaccine so that they're, they're uh, looking forward to receiving that vaccine and, and um, are participating in the, in the process of getting it. And that, again, is, a, um, if you will, an unprecedented uh, scale of undertaking. Um, I shared with you just a minute ago that um, we have some substantial experience um, running immunization campaigns, um, very large ones uh, in different uh, different places. Um, India vaccinated about 400 million people under the age of 15 over two years to protect them against measles and rubella, for example. But trying to do the whole globe in uh, a couple of years is, again, another logarithm of, uh, of uh, uh, ambition. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to take uh, global cooperation, um, significant planning and resources to be able to make sure that we do that uh, safely and effectively. So those are uh, a few of the different examples of, of places where we need um, to come together as, uh, as um, you know, as a globe and, and solve this problem collectively rather than uh, trying to, to break off or piecemeal out uh, individual parts. So we're undertaking uh, a global, in a sense, experiment, an unprecedented global experiment to try and control what is a, a global problem. We do have 
mechanism institutions in place that can help and assist in in a coherent, hopefully, and comprehensive, fair, and equitable global response over the timescales, the short timescales that you've pointed out are required. But given that we've never done this before, um, it's possible we'll get it wrong. So I guess my question would be, given the scale of the problem and the scale of the uh, the magnitude of the experiment, you talked about it being a lot logarithmically greater than what we have done before. There, there are some significant risks associated with it. And I guess the, the point would be that the risks of not doing it are far, far higher. I don't want to dismiss the important foundational base that we have for doing everything that we're doing. Um, there are uh, people with tremendous um, backgrounds and experience in organizing immunization campaigns. Um, you may know that the uh, global polio uh, eradication effort for many years was led by Canadian Bruce Aylward. Um, polio has at its peak uh, immunized in campaigns uh, probably close to three quarters of a billion people. Um, we have a lot of uh, experience that we can draw off of. We also have some unique challenges right now and um, scale uh, in terms of doing what we've done, but bigger uh, is going to be one of those uh, important ones that we're going to have to um, we're going to have to talk through. Um, we're going to have to plan carefully. We're going to have to uh, monitor carefully. Um, if there are mistakes that are being made, we need to be able to pick those up and adjust uh, quickly. Um, we're also learning quite a lot right now that I think will be valuable when we get COVID vaccines and want to use them for everybody. One of the uh, impacts of the COVID epidemic has been to interrupt regular health service delivery in many of the countries where we're working. That interruption in service delivery is likely, if it's sustained, to have as big or bigger health impact than COVID directly, right? The, the, the failure to be able to treat um, malaria, HIV, or um, uh, prevent measles infections with vaccination, or for women to be able to deliver in a, in a facility, um, the consequences of that interrupted service delivery are, are, are massive. And countries are just now starting to put their attention back into what does it take to reestablish uh, essential service delivery? How do I um, reinvigorate the trust in the population that they can come and be safely served by the healthcare workers that want to uh, be able to give them preventive health care or um, uh, enable them to, to, to deliver safe, safely and all those things. Um, I think the experience that countries are having, and we are seeing some, some bright spots of places that are starting to adjust the way that they deliver services and ramp them back up again. I think that experience and how you build that trust, how you create um, a safe experience for healthcare workers and uh, patients will all be part of what we will draw on to um, address this unprecedented challenge of, of, of scale with uh, COVID vaccines that's coming. 
I think this is an excellent point about the the further inequities that are created by COVID-19 through interruption of essential health services in many parts of the world. We tend to think about that, the interruption of health services associated with COVID-19 in Canada as delaying, for example, um, non-essential surgeries. But in in other parts of the world, many parts of the world, um, the delay in essential services uh, is life-threatening. I think that that's I think that that's an important uh, point that we need to all of us need to take into consideration and think very carefully about when we think about uh, the equity issue with respect to deployment of vaccines globally and and perhaps uh, the resources required to do so. I'd like to, in what remains of the time, return to a question that I know is on the minds of many people, and that is you've you've indicated that the pace of development is unprecedented, that that the process, the scientific discovery process and vaccine development is is highly, highly accelerated. And there are people that are concerned about the implications of that for safety. And so People might say, for example, that uh, there's intense pressure to develop vaccines given the magnitude of the crisis and deploy these vaccines as rapidly as possible. Um, Does this mean that usual protocols to ensure safety and effectiveness may be bypassed? No. Um, Scott, we are taking a lot of... um, effort to try and do steps in parallel, but we're not going to skip the important steps of assuring safety and, uh, and, and very careful, rigorous oversight of the vaccines that that's false economy. Um, what we are doing are the kinds of things that I described earlier, like we're going to pay you to make a bundle of this vaccine, not knowing if it works yet with the realization that if it doesn't, we will have paid for a vaccine that didn't work. But if it does, the global economy is losing $10 billion a day. So every day that we accelerate the use of a safe, efficacious vaccine to get people back to work faster, pays for itself so many times over and over in terms of helping uh, people get back to their livelihoods. Those are the kinds of things that we're uh, accelerating and compressing timelines on. Um, we're not uh, we're not going to cut corners on the on the safety piece. I think I think lots of people will be reassured or should be reassured by that. And I think that sentiment about not cutting corners. I think that's true uh, globally. That that the institutions that are responsible, for example, for the registration of vaccines, understand that despite the acuteness of the crisis, there is a real need to make sure that there's no short-circuiting of of safety evaluation before deploying candidate vaccines. I'd like to finish off with, um, I I guess, two questions. The first one has to do with misinformation and disinformation. There's already been a lot of misinformation and indeed disinformation circulating about COVID-19. And I think people much more knowledgeable than myself suspect that once viable vaccine alternatives are available, the misinformation, disinformation machine 
um, may well shift into overdrive. And so suppose someone sees a YouTube video or a blog post or an article or a tweet or a Facebook post where someone, doesn't matter whether they're a scientist or a politician or a journalist or a pundit, is making a claim about a vaccine, for example, that is safe, that is effective, or that a coronavirus vaccine is being used by Mr. Gates to implant microchips in billions of people to track their movements. So these are all claims that one can imagine being made. So what are the what are the most important questions that somebody who's who's looking at those claims should be asking themselves and deciding whether to believe the claim or not? Scott, I'm so glad that you asked this question. Um, look, this is a really hard time for people right now. Um, there's a, a once in a century pandemic uh, amidst us, and there are tons of questions out there, legitimate questions about. Um, what works, what's safe, what's not, et cetera. And um, anybody who, uh, who isn't wondering about, um, about these kinds of things is, is, is really um, in, a, in, in a special place because all of us have questions. I, I think um, while it's understandable that people have uh, questions and, and even uh, anxieties or frightened about things, I, I think one of the first things to do is um, look at the source of the information and and just double check it um uh there are um really really rigorous high standard uh sources of information um in the u.s our centers for disease control is you know uh a, a source of uh really rigorous and, and um uh uh, solid uh, science and data. Um, I, I'm sure that there's the equivalent in, in Canada and many other people's countries. Um, so one of the first things to do is, is look at the source. And then um, secondly, I think um, uh, trying to um, uh, kind of r reconcile what you're hearing from one source with what you're hearing from others. Um, not to Not to distrust trust and verify um maybe ask the same question of a couple of different sources and see whether you get the the same kind of uh the same kind of information back um i think one of the most important things for interrupting the spread of a virus like coronavirus is that we spread good information um that spreading of good information can be one of the most powerful tools that individuals can take to um, to interrupt the transmission, and um, many of your listeners may have seen the hashtag wear a mask for this week. Um, that's a really really good uh, uh, step that that everybody can take that can help them to protect themselves and the communities that they're in. That's I think sound advice. This this has been a really informative and and thought provoking discussion. If I might make an observation, um, our, our conversation has focused a lot, I would say primarily, on, on the science of vaccines and science associated with the development of the vaccine and delivery of the vaccine. And yet we know that control of COVID-19, in other words, getting the pandemic under control, ultimately depends on the, on the personal behavior of each and every one of us. And so I guess... In closing, if, if you could give one piece of advice about COVID-19 or 
in particular, the SARS vaccine, uh, to that person that all Canadian leaders like to talk about, but none has ever actually encountered, I refer here to the average Canadian, Mm-hmm. What what would that advice be? The one piece of advice about SARS-CoV-2 vaccines that you would offer? I would ask that you um, offer trust. Um, I know that out there um, there's conspiracy theories and lots of people um, coming up with uh, explanations for things, etc., at least in my experience, the people I've encountered who are working to try and address the pandemic, um, whether it's uh, my sister is a healthcare worker or um, researchers I know or um, frontline nurses, um, they're, they're in it for protecting people and protecting people's health and the, um, the, spirit they bring and the heroism that they're bringing to do this work is really, I think, in the public interest, not self-interest. And so um, I'd ask you to offer trust as the first step in understanding how um, COVID vaccines and other tools um, can really help to to, uh, end this pandemic. I think that's excellent advice that we all, average or not, should take to heart in perhaps a fitting place in this podcast. On behalf of our listeners, Canada 2020, Global Progress, the Institute for Fiscal Studies and Democracy, uh, thanks for your knowledge, your candor, your efforts in our collective behalf, and perhaps most importantly, that last piece of advice. Thanks very much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for for being with you today. And and big thanks to everyone in Canada who's been a really, really critical part of the global response. Um, Together, we uh, we can beat this thing.